This morning's reading is taken from John chapter 17, verses 1 to 26. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine, and glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction, so that scripture would be fulfilled. I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them, and will continue to make you known, in order that the love you have for me may be in them, and that I myself may be in them. This is the Gospel of Christ. Praise to Christ the Word. Well, thank you, Tim, and good morning, everyone. Very nice to see you. Uh, I'd like to add my welcome to James's. Thanks for coming out on a uh, miserable morning. And uh, I stand this morning before you as someone humbled as was stated by Oliver, zero from three in the children's quiz. So I'm not sure you should listen to a word I have to say right now. Uh, I guess that should mean we pray all the more fervently this morning. Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you for this wonderful prayer of Jesus's. And as we spend the next few minutes thinking on it, reflecting on it, 
I pray that the truths contained in it, both the challenges and the encouragements, may sink into our hearts and come out in the way we live our lives. Please work within us in these next few minutes by your spirit, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, just before we get into John 17, a couple of things I should have said probably during the notices. Uh, there's a number of things that are advertised in the new sheet. Please do look at that. But one big one is um, the men's event coming up next Saturday, a chance for the, the men of the parish to gather to watch some rugby. Uh, there's an, there's an all-black test match coming up. So uh, if you want to go to that, the details of how to do it are there. Uh, just a word, too, on the three parish meetings before the big one on Thursday. There's nothing new happening at those meetings. They're only opportunities, the one after church today and one on Tuesday and Wednesday. Uh, they're only there for people if you've got more questions or more things uh, you'd like to discuss. There's nothing new coming from uh, Vestry, so don't feel compelled to go. There's, uh, there's no need to. But the one on Thursday, obviously, is the big one, and I've had a number of questions about can we vote if we're not there? Can we vote by proxy? We're not able to do that. So the Anglican rules, uh, our diocesan rules, uh, don't allow voting by proxy for parish meetings. So uh, we have to be present to be able to vote. So I hope that's cleared things up for those that had questions. Well, let's turn our uh, minds to something uh, more important, which is John 17. You can often see in a Christian's, uh, a Christian's priorities in the things that they pray for. Uh, our prayer times... Our prayer lists, some of us may keep prayer journals, reveal the things that are often nearest and dearest to our hearts. The things that concern us, the things that bring us joy, the things that we're worried about, we take to the Lord in prayer. Well, this morning we have the great privilege of hearing Jesus pray. That's what Tim just read out to us. We read of Jesus praying in the Gospels fairly often, but we don't always get to hear the content of his prayers, certainly not in the kind of detail that we do in John 17. But here, near the end of John's Gospel, and literally only hours before he dies, we have a glimpse of this prayer of our Lord's. And so we see his priorities. We see the things on his mind, we see the things on his heart before his death. Uh, today I'm picking up in the series that Jeff and James have both been doing for a number of weeks in these chapters in John's Gospel. It's a section of John's Gospel often called the Farewell Discourse because it's the night of Jesus' arrest. Keep that in mind as we see the prayer. It's the night that he's going to be arrested just before his death and this will be the last time that he spends with his disciples before he goes to the cross. And that's why it's called the Farewell Discourse. And in these chapters that Jeff and James have been preaching, we've seen Jesus teach his disciples, encourage his disciples, challenge his disciples. But today we see him finish this section as he prays. Now, I'm cheating this morning. I'm not even pretending to cover everything in this chapter. As, as Tim read through it, I'm sure you saw it's absolutely chocked with stuff. I'm just going to pluck three main aspects of Jesus' prayer out, three strands, which I think you can argue are, are the central ones, but that's all we're going to focus on this morning. Uh, one from each section, because this prayer of Jesus really does split up into three sections. If you have a look behind me or in your Bibles in front of you, you can see that in verses 1 to 5, Jesus is really praying for himself and for his Father. Verses 1 to 5. But then in verses 6 to 19, it changes. And he starts to pray for the 11 disciples that are with him in the room. Remember, by this stage, Judas is gone. 
So he's praying for the 11 disciples. Then in verse 20 till the end, 20 to 26, he prays not just for those 11 disciples that are in the room with him, but for all that will become his disciples down through the ages because of the ministry of the 11. In other words, you and I and every other Christian who's lived uh, since then. So they're the three sections, and we'll look at one point from each of the sections in these prayers. So first point this morning, Jesus prays that the Father will be glorified. I want you to notice he prays the Father will be glorified, because when you read through it um, without thinking about it, you can think he's praying for something else. Look at verse 1. After Jesus said this, he looked at heaven and prayed, Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you've given him. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. I've brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. You can read that kind of um, superficially and think, oh, it's a bit awkward. The boxer Muhammad Ali was famous for constantly shouting out, I am the greatest. Uh, He also used to shout out, the champ is here. And in doing so, he wasn't only proclaiming the glory he thought he had, he was also making it very clear no one else was on his level. And you could think that Jesus is doing something similar here. Glorify me, glorify the Son, he says a couple of times in those verses. But look at it more closely and you see why Jesus wants to be glorified. Verse 1 so that the Father may be glorified. This is not Muhammad Ali elevating himself and putting others down in equal measure. Here is Jesus asking that he, the Son, might be glorified, so that the Father might be glorified. See, it's worth asking, where do you see God's glory? Where do you see the glory of our great God? Some might answer in creation. You see it in a a sunset at the end of a day, or looking over a cliff at the power of the ocean, or you're looking at a mighty, mighty mountain or a particular creature. Some might say you, say you see it in human beings, made in the image of God. And there's truth in all of that. I think we see a bit of the glory of God and all that and more. But God's true glory, where we see it most powerfully, his true majesty, where we see it most keenly, his true greatness and splendor is seen in his Son. In the glory of Jesus. In Jesus' glory. And how is the Son glorified? How is Jesus glorified? You might say, well, as he walked on water, or as he did incredible healings. or But no, no, no. There's a very specific thing that is the glory of Jesus. In John chapter 12, just a couple of chapters before this one, Jesus said these words, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. So he says, now is the time I'm about to be glorified. And then what does he go on to say? I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. He goes on to speak about his death. Because it's as he dies, much life will be given. It's as his death comes, life will be given to other people. In John's gospel, the glory of Jesus is always tied up in the cross, in his death, because it's that that brings the eternal life that Jesus prays about in verse 2 and 3 here of chapter 17. So think about what all that means. God is glorified as Jesus is glorified on the cross. 
And so Jesus says, glorify me so that you may be glorified, so that people may have eternal life. That's what he's praying. Now, if that was Jesus' purpose, his very purpose and glory was the cross so that life may be given, then that should surely affect the way we live our lives, the way we pray our prayers, that we would be praying that Jesus be glorified because that brings glory to the Father. And how is Jesus glorified now? He doesn't go to the cross again and again. He's glorified today as people come to know him as Saviour and Lord. And as people live their life in obedience to him, that's the Son being glorified and therefore the Father being glorified. Nothing brings more glory to God now than people moving from darkness to light and from death to life in Jesus. And so I ask us this morning, do our prayers and our lives show that kind of priority? Do we witness and pray for unbelievers uh, that they would come to know Jesus so that he would be glorified and the Father glorified? Or do we just do a holy huddle with ourselves on a Sunday morning and focus on ourselves? Jesus prayed that he would be glorified so that the Father would be glorified. And we glorify them today as we point people to Jesus, as we share his saving work, as we pray for people to put their trust in him, and as we continue to live with him as Lord. So there's the first element of his prayer this morning. He prays that he would be glorified so that the Father would be glorified. Secondly, Jesus prays that his disciples will remain in the world and be protected from the evil one that his disciples will remain in the world and be protected from the evil one. Uh, this is verses 6 to 19. The focus goes off Jesus so much now and onto the disciples, specifically the 11 with him in the room. He describes them in verses 6 to 8 as the ones given to Jesus by the Father who have obeyed God's word and accepted Jesus' word as the word of God. And then he prays for them. Have a look at his prayer. Verse 9, and, and pay attention, special attention to when he's talking about being in the world, being sent to the world, but not of the world, that kind of language. Verse 9, I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you've given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine, and glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that scripture would be fulfilled. That's Judas. I'm coming to you now, but I say these things while I'm still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they're not of, this, of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I'm not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I've sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified." Now, I hope you can see there's a huge amount in this, uh, uh, this section as he prays for the 11. But the key thing that I want to bring to you this morning, there's much more in it, but the key thing I want is he prays that his disciples would stay in the world. They've been sent into the world, but protected from the evil one. That's obviously Satan. Look again at verse 15. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. And he reminds them, verse 18, it's not just that they're, they're in the world, they were sent into the world. 
As you sent me into the world, I've sent them into the world. But, verse 14 and 16, they're not of the world. And I want to say that although Jesus is clearly praying about the 11 disciples that were in that room with him that night, uh, these things, I believe, are relevant for all of Jesus' disciples down through the ages. That we're not taken out of the world, that we see ourselves as having been sent into the world, but we're not of the world. And those two things are very important. And there's dangers uh, of kind of extremes on either end. It presents two extreme problems or temptations for us. We're either not in the world enough or we're so closely tied to the world it's dangerous and the evil one uses it to bring us down. So not in the world enough or too into the world. Both are extremes to be avoided as Christians. And most of us have a natural inclination to go one way or the other. I always think as Christians we should be self-aware enough to know where we're likely to be tempted. Where is the area we're likely to face temptation? And so I'll ask you this morning, which one of those two extremes are you most likely to fall into? Are you likely to withdraw from the world too much? or to be too like the world, almost indistinguishable. Because both are problems. The first problem, not uh, in the world enough, that's what I call the monk problem. You know, cutting ourselves off from the world so that it can't affect us. The problem, of course, is that we then can't affect the world either, and that's why we're here. Now, the thinking behind this is often good. There's often a lot of strength to it. We genuinely don't want the world around us to seduce us or to cause us to fall. And so we make changes in our lives. We don't listen to certain radio music or we don't watch the same TV or films that other people do. Some people take it further and they, they cut off the internet altogether and uh, some people don't drink alcohol. Some people won't watch the news because it just fills their head with kind of fear and all those sorts of things. Some people don't have non-Christian friendships because they don't want to be pulled in certain directions. Some pull their children out of public schools, only send them to Christian schools or homeschooling. Now, my hope in writing all those things was that I offended everyone in this room at some stage. Because, please don't mishear me, I'm not saying that any of those things are foolish decisions or wrong. They may absolutely be right and godly and wise for you and your family. But if they start to build up and you're ticking off all of them and more, if they describe your default position to every area of life, then you may be in danger of removing yourself so far from the world that you can't relate to it anymore. And I realize the irony of me saying this, who doesn't have a cell phone and isn't on social media. But these are the kind of decisions you make, right? And Christians can sometimes do this. We can do it for ourselves, where we remove ourselves. We can do it sometimes as, as Christian parents, where we protect our children from the world more than uh, preparing them for the world. And there's a balance there, and there are fine lines and things, but we've got to keep the, the main game in mind. And when that happens, when we're so far removed, we don't know how to speak to non-Christians about everyday things because we don't know everyday things. And we don't know how to speak. Uh, the gospel is unchanging, but the way you package the gospel changes from place to place and culture to culture. If you don't know the culture that you're in, it's going to be very hard to explain the gospel powerfully and persuasively. We may have removed ourselves so much that we... We stop glorifying the Son to glorify the Father. And we've lost the main aim. 
And it's hard to build good relationships with others because we don't actually have anything in common with them. And that goes against what Jesus wants from us, what he prays for us, because we've been left in the world. More than that, it's more active than that, sent into the world, not just to be a holy huddle, not just to look after ourselves, but to continue on Jesus' work of eternal life. Glory of God and the glory of Jesus, which is eternal life in the cross. So if you know that you can be tempted to remove yourself too much from the world, keep an eye on that. Work against it. See if there are certain things you may need to, uh, to change to bring things back into more balance. So that's one extreme. That's not my extreme. Mine's the other. You can work out which yours is. Mine is two in the world, where we just take on uncritically the world and culture around us. We become, according to the language of Jesus in verse 14 and 16, of the world. We're not supposed to be of the world, but we actually become of the world. And we don't see when the devil uses it to take us away from God's plans and purposes for our lives. The bright lights of self-fulfillment take us in this direction. The attractions of the world take us in this direction. And we end up drifting off course from God's glory and driven towards the direction of ourselves and the world around us. So career goals become everything. Relationship concerns become everything. Storing up material blessings becomes the bulk of our time and money and effort and desire. Is that you? Here's a question for you. On a normal week, what drives you? What does most of your time, your money, your thought, your prayer, your effort, your desire go into on a week, on a normal week? Where do most of those things find their, is it into the world or beyond the world to the glory of Jesus? That's a very challenging question to ask. I find it very challenging. Have we come to love the world more than we would like to admit, and in doing so, love the Lord and love his people less than we should. The devil uses things. The world is a good place, and Christianity believes in the material. The material's good. Nothing wrong with the material. But the devil uses the things of the world to pull us away from our Savior, away from his glory, to dull our enthusiasm and passion and love for the Lord, and our big picture thinking of eternity, not just here and now. And we focus on just this world rather than eternal life. And we become less faithful as witnesses. And our lives take on almost exactly the same tone and timing and template as non-Christian lives around us. And we're then less useful for doing God's work. In the same way that we're not good if we've removed ourselves so far from the world, we're no good if we've just effectively become the world, the same as the world around us. And we have the same aroma, not the aroma of life that comes when we're following Jesus. If that's you, I want to challenge you, as I've been challenging myself, think critically about what you do. Where is your focus? Where are you going in life? What are you using your time and money and desires for? Jesus prays, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. That's the second thing that he prays for. Thirdly, Jesus prays, that we will be united. He prays for a unity for the disciples of Jesus. Uh, have a look at verse 20, and he now broadens his prayer. His prayer is not just for those 11 in the room, but for all that will become disciples of his down through the centuries through their ministry. He says, verse 20, my prayer is not for them alone. 
I pray also for those who will, will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you've sent me. I've given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me. May they be, may they be brought to complete unity, to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you've loved me. And it goes on, but I'll, I'll leave it there because I'm focusing on the unity part. He prays in verse 11 for the 11. Now he prays for all his disciples, including you and I, and he prays particularly for our unity. And I would take it that because Jesus is praying this at this particular time, he must think this is important. He must think this is very, very important. He must think that this is something that will be a weakness for us, where we will need encouragement and help. Now, before I challenge us on unity, let me just say a brief word on what this unity isn't. Because in some circles, in Christian circles, unity is used as almost the highest good, the thing that must happen at any cost in any circumstance. That's not what's being spoken of here. There's no true unity unless it's unity in the truth. And it's clear in the New Testament that there is also a time for separation, for a breaking of relationships. Jesus will at times in the Gospels call uh, false teachers that he comes across. Uh, he'll use the language of brood of vipers and snakes. He'll call people children of the devil. These are not language that aimed at bringing unity, you'll understand. In 1 Corinthians 5, the Apostle Paul will talk about a time to separate from believers that lack repentance. Not unbelievers. In fact, 1 Corinthians 5 is a very good chapter to read. He's very specific, Paul. He says, don't, don't break fellowship with unbelievers who behave in those ways. We should expect unbelievers to behave in those ways. But break fellowship with believers who act in these ways and will not repent. In Titus, we're told to have nothing to do with Christians that are constantly divisive. So what I'm saying is it's not always unity at any cost, because that's sometimes said and used. And that's because the unity that Jesus is speaking of here is real unity, true unity. Verse 21, like the Father and the Son have. In other words, it's unity in truth, unity in purpose, unity in holiness, unity in love. And so anything that goes against the truth of Christ or the holiness of God or the purpose of the gospel or the love of God is to be rejected. And there's no unity there. So there's a time and a place where sometimes separation of relationships, either to win people back or to protect the flock, is necessary in the New Testament. So we don't want to twist it. But the focus here is on the importance of unity. And in the same way that I don't want us to misunderstand it, I don't want to take the power off this. This is a big, uh, strong point that the Lord Jesus is making for Christians to be united. And we should be challenged by this because we know this as Christians. Lack of unity, disunity, is easy to creep in. Unity is easy to lose and endanger and break. And we will all cause disunity at different times because of our fallen hearts and spirits. But as Christians, we're called to be united because we need each other and that unity is a strength for us and, and also because of the witness it is to the world, Jesus prays here. And so friends, as a church here at St. Stephen's, I want to encourage us and prod us towards unity. Not thinking that we're not different people with different personalities, different likes and dislikes and ways of relating, and that's actually a strength. But that in Christ we hold together. 
in Christ, we respect and support one another and build each other up, sometimes rebuke each other, sometimes care for each other. And because unity is to be like the Father and Son, unity happens the more that we live in line with the Spirit and against the flesh. So I want to encourage us this morning in some ways to maintain unity and not cause division. Uh, and um, I'm just going to throw out a few different examples of things that cause division and, and ruin unity. And I'll let the Holy Spirit tap you on the shoulder if that's something you should listen to. I've been tapped a lot as I've gone through this list. There are often people within a church family who speak unkindly and ungraciously. Shame on us when we do that. Some of us take ourselves off the hook when we do that and say, well, it's just my personality. That's what I'm like. I'm just a truth bringer. That's who I am. No shame on us when we speak unkindly, when we speak ungraciously, when we, when we speak unlovingly towards people. We don't want to be doing that. But there are other people who've got an oversensitive nature and that also can cause problems. People who take too much offence. I actually think one of the real problems the Western world's struggling with at the moment is we keep saying that the biggest sin is to offend someone. And we're not training people to not take offence and to get over things. We can have too much. That we, as a person, we can sometimes be oversensitive. Something to think about. There can be people we can all be too difficult to please. Standards are too high. Expectations are too much of other people. And we cause pressure on other people in a way where actually the problem is ourselves. There are some people that are too high to help. And if that offends you in the way that I've mentioned it, you're one of those people. <laughs> because normally it's pride that allows, you know, stops us from allowing other people to help us or to serve us. Uh, but there are other people who are too lazy and too needy and make everyone else help them. I think of the Galatians problem. Remember where Paul in Galatians, I can't remember if it's 5 or 6, I think it's the end of 5, where he talks about the importance of carrying your load but sharing your burdens. And you kind of go, well, which one is it, Paul? It's either one or the other. No, no, it's not. It's both. It's very important that we can carry our own load. There are certain problems that we have to face in life where we have to take the responsibility for it ourselves and it's no one else's problem, but there are others that are so big they need to be shared. And some people try and thrust their loads upon everyone else when what they should actually do is carry it themselves, and some people won't allow others to share their burden with them. Both causes problems within the church family. Arrogance. When we're not humble enough to admit that we're wrong or humble enough to ask people for forgiveness or humble enough to turn and repent, that brings problems and disunity within a church family. We must be people of humble hearts. We mustn't be people to re who refuse to forgive. Sometimes we're the ones who refuse to forgive. Bitterness. Bitterness causes real difficulty in a person's life and within the body of believers. Selfishness. When we're so focused on ourselves and our issues that we're not thinking of others. When we're waiting for the gap in the conversation so that we can finally get to say, well, we're not even actually thinking about what they're saying to us. Gossip and slander. We, we always put gossip down as not that big a deal. It comes up repeatedly in the New Testament. When we speak ill of people or thoughtlessly of people, 
where we're critical of people in a way, not, not always in a nasty way, sometimes in just, a, just dropping it in there, waiting to see what it does. That kind of thing just brings disunity. A lack of thankfulness. The longer I go on in the Christian walk, the more important I think thankfulness is. If we can keep our eyes on all that the Lord has given us that we've got to be thankful for, it helps us deal with everything else. And it certainly helps us relate better to other people. Lack of generosity. This is one for us who think we're right often because as evangelicals we're very good at thinking we're right. When we're right, it's still important how we speak truth to other people. In other words, it's not good enough to just shout the truth loudly at other people. Because if we care for other people, it's not just about who's shouting the louder or who's the rightest. I don't think that's a word. It's about wanting other people to see the truth. That'll impact the way we speak it and share it and live it with others. Being gentle. I think of the role of the overseer in 1 Timothy 3. Gentleness is one of the requirements. There is a place for speaking strongly and making a stand, but there's also a place for gentleness. And some of us are not good at being gentle. Quarrelsome. That's a big difficulty. You're divisive people. We could go on and on. And uh, I wonder whether you've been tapped. I was certainly tapped as I kind of worked putting some of these things down on paper. Disunity can creep in so easily. Of course, being faithful is the primary thing of keeping us together. That's what we're united in. That's what all those things are. They're just things that I've taken out of the New Testament about us living in line with the Spirit. Us being obedient to the Lord is what unifies us. But unity will bring us fellowship and loving relationships in a way that strengthens every Christian. Because there are lonely times in this world. But when there is unity with brothers and sisters in Christ, when you've got relationships that you can bank on, that is a wonderful, wonderful uh, security and safety and encouragement. And it's also a wonderful witness to the world. When the world sees Christians united, looking after one another, loving one another in practical ways, it's a powerful witness. I hope that it would be wonderful if there are some relational difficulties in us this morning. Don't sit on them. Pray about them and let's work on them. We want unity. Jesus prays for our unity here. So three things that he prays for. The night of his arrest. And if, as I said at the beginning, you can tell a man's heart by his prayers, then this prayer is very telling. Because Jesus didn't pray for his safety or happiness the night of his arrest. He didn't pray for the weather or anything like that. He prayed for the glory of God. And he prayed for the good of God's people. That's what he prayed for on the night of his arrest. It's not a bad prayer list, is it? Wouldn't be a bad prayer list to, to put on ours. And isn't it encouraging to know that you and I made his prayer list? He prayed for those who would become disciples down through the ages. That's you and I. I still remember there was a, a Christian leader that I had huge respect and admiration for. And uh, I once, um, I was sharing something with him and he, he added it to a prayer journal that was on his desk. And my name was in his prayer journal. So he just added this specific thing next to my name. And I was so encouraged that this person that I'd respected so much had me in his prayer journal. It's a silly thing, isn't it? But I was. I was very, very encouraged. You and I are in the prayer journal of Jesus. He prayed for us the night of his arrest. It's an incredible thing. I trust that his prayer may both encourage us and challenge us. Let me pray. Father, we thank you 
for the Lord Jesus, who on the night of his arrest prayed for your glory and for the good of us. Father, I pray that we would know that beyond anything else in this world, the most important thing is the glory of Jesus because it brings glory to you and brings life to people. May that focus our hearts and minds. Father, I pray that we would know that we are in this world for a purpose and yet also protected by you while we're in it. Father, at those times when we feel so low or isolated from the world or so in the world that we're taken by it, please, by your Spirit, strengthen us so that in this dark world that's so full of darkness, we may share uh, a light that points to, to Jesus. And Father, I pray for unity amongst us, that as we face life in this difficult world, we may be united as you and, the far, you and your Son are united. Please grant us that by your Spirit, and help us change for those ways that we bring disunity. And we ask these things in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.